Beware of children. Uncle, supernova, air conditioner, bean pole, about endlessness, echo, the rifleman, and your bird can sing. One of these is going to win film of the year 2020. But which one? I can't do it by myself, so I've had to enlist the help of director-writer Ben Woodwiss and from the People's Movies for the final time on this podcast, Paul Devine. Guys, this is a hell of a list, and I don't mind saying that not all heroes wear capes because some heroes do film podcasts. And this list is fantastic. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, yep. it really, yeah. It's, it's a very broad selection of different kinds of film as well. I, it, this is really hard to choose. Film it, is, it has been hard, uh, but we've all got top threes that <laughs> we will get to at the end, obviously. The winner will be crowned. But uh, it, it's, yeah, as you say, there's a variety of passports, which is a given for this podcast, but there's a variety of styles. Yeah. There's a variety of amount of dialogue. Yeah. Like we, we go from both extremes and plenty in between. We've we have we we've we've got literally got so much stuff in here. And I I would say that if you do, there's something here for absolutely everyone. Absolutely everybody. Yeah. And if not, then you can't call yourself a film fan. Like there's just so much stuff in here that's for people. Uh, I mean wh- I mean where else can we I mean we're gonna start off with a humdinger, let's be fair. Mm. Um the Nordic Film Cancels film of the year twenty twenty. Uh Beware of Children, Ben. Would you like to get us going with that one? Nomination number one. Yeah, so Beware of Children is um, Dag Johan Haugerud's film. Very good. Uh, thank, thank you very much. <laughs> but your, your, your Norwegian is better than basic. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a little above average. Um, <laughs> it's the story of the, the accidental death of a child, um, the death of the child of a right-wing politician at the hands of uh, the daughter of a left-wing politician. Um, and then the kind of the the spiraling of this event so it starts off with with the killing and then we follow everyone around them parents uh teachers and the system that everyone is locked into and everything just kind of grows bigger and bigger and bigger uh, i keep thinking that this film it's called beware of children in english the norwegian title is children um and i think that one of the points that this film is trying to get across is that everyone is a child everyone has their abandonment issues um uh, everyone uh, feels slighted in some way no matter how old they are um it's a beguilingly simply made film as well when you watch it, it kind of it feels like a tv movie but it also doesn't um, I'm not 100% sure how they achieve this. Watching it again as well, I, I still, I get I get completely kind of, I, I forget to pay attention to the mechanics of how the film is made. Um, it's just so simple. It's so uh, beguilingly simple is where I keep coming to. Um, and it's, but it's just so effective. You're, you're so there with the participants. This is not a film, this is not a kind of spectatorship experience. This is a, a participatory experience where you're you're in the room with the people all the time. It, it's very odd how this feeling is kind of built up. Mm-hmm. Um, big fan of this film, um, probably more for the themes and the topics than the cinematic. You know how the film is made. I mean, in, in looking back at these nine films, I've had to think about what am I looking for here in a film of the year? Um, is it how it's made? Is it what it is? Um, is it what it's about? Is it what the subtext is? So, you know, what makes this film a contender for me for film of the year is other themes and the subtexts. Um, these are very 2020, very contemporary issues going on, very much 
about um, left and right wing against each other, but no one in this film is good and no one is bad. Everyone is shades of gray. There are no heroes whatsoever, no matter what the background and what the opinions, um, which it just feels like a really timely message. Um, and also two hours, 37 minutes flies by. It flies. It really does. Yeah. Astonishing, really. Uh, Paul, you're new yeah. to this uh, because obviously me and Ben did it first time around. So you're brand new. So I'm sure both of us are really eager to hear what you've got to say about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm like Ben there. And I felt it was like a, like a TV drama. Uh, and obviously the, the length, it could be like a two-part drama in ITV or Channel 4, any other channel. And and, and it's Ben's right. I, mean, I thought it was a really strong cast uh, and it felt very real. Uh, it gave you the impression. None of us are perfect. Uh, we make mistakes. We make untimely comments, which uh, which we heard, we've seen a lot in the film. And it's like politics. Each side of the political fence will give their positives. But they'll never ever they'll they'll be very defensive on the negatives. So no one is absolutely perfect. I thought it was a very complex, sort of profound, thought provoking uh, drama. Yeah, the, the you're right with the the, uh, the the length of the time. It did fly in as well. Very contemporary. It reminded me of something that maybe Sean Barker or Kelly Reichardt maybe have maybe have done as well. You know, it's that sort of. Very realism. It could easily be in a, a, a docu- documented drama where you were just sitting in and notes that you were just watching people just discussing what actually happened. But uh, see, the, the beginning, we obviously seen the black lines. I was trying to figure out what, what was the meaning of that. Was that something to do with looking at everything in black and white? Was that what there was sort of meaning? Nobody had sort of white lines, and then eventually you saw the, the football pitch where the, the incident happened. I, I think starting with that, like, it starting off with a series of like an an image where you're kind of sitting there going, what does this mean? Yeah. Kind of gives you up for the rest of the film because as the rest of the film goes on, you know how did the child die? Um, that's kind of the big question that yeah. the movie posits right at the beginning. It's never answered. You never get to the bottom of this. Everything no. is like a, a raw shark print basically. So everything is left up to to your imagination. Like. Like who's who's in the wrong, who's in the right, what happened even. No one ever finds out what happened in this film. And that I think those images at the beginning are kind of mirroring that. Like, what is this? What are you looking at? Draw your own. Uh, I mean, I believe I asked you at the time when we did this in, a, in, a, in the actual episode of yeah. this film, Ben. Um, technically, what on earth is that opening scene? Like, it, has it got a name? Like the actual technique that's used to like drain out all the colour, but turn it a different colour, whilst also uh, like accentuating the white lines of stuff. Like, is there, is that is there an actual t- a technical term you can describe I mean, that as? In essence, it's it's a dissolve or a fade, but it's just it's just one done with. It's just a very imaginative dissolve or fade, mm. and it's it's coming from. I, I, they've they've boiled down the essence of what that opening shot is, and then represented it in lines. And then just move from one to the other really slowly. It's very effective. Again, like everything in this film, beguilingly simple. Like it, it's much more complicated than it looks. Everything here is at a much higher level than you might think. So, and, and that's what I came to because actually, I know I'm going to bring on to the conversation of art in this movie. I mean, obviously, we've just mentioned the opening scene. It's art. There is no doubt about that. But. Throughout the film, there are little moments of artistic endeavour that take place. And again, 
they're so subtle that you may not even realize it until you've watched a film the second time around um for example when the news comes out that the child because initially that you only hear oh by the way we should obviously say that there are spoilers for these next nine oh, reviews spoiler film, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but obviously you've had all year to watch these there's nothing brand new here so uh, i'm afraid if you get offended by that then you've had a lot of time and probably a lot of furlough time to watch some of these movies ladies <laughs> and gentlemen so yeah you, you can expect you can expect some spoilers um so Obviously, initially, you hear that the child is in hospital. You don't actually know that he's died yet. Mm. Um, but when the announcement gets made and the head teacher finds out, um, she actually looks out the window. Now, obviously, that would be enough in itself because she's now contemplating, oh, my God, what's going to happen? But she sees a reflection of herself. But it's not a normal reflection. It's a reflection that has eight other reflections to it. Mm. And those are the multiple roles that the head teacher will have to go and play in the rest of this movie. Like, she's going to have to play the husband of the father not the husband, the partner of the father who's lost, lost, lost a child. She's going to have to play the head teacher role, you know, for the good of the school. She's going to have to play the role of a friend for all these other friends that she's got in the school. She has to look after them and make sure they feel okay with it. So just little things like that. That's one example. Then you've got a sleep scene that takes place. Uh, you've got, you've got, I think, Silent Night, or the Norwegian equivalent of, is being sung. Uh, because one of the particular teachers feels extremely guilty about what's happened. And the camera just literally pans to every single other character in the movie and them struggling to sleep. Again, it, it just falls into the whole tapestry of the film when you're watching the film. But afterwards, you think, good God, that was rather artistic and rather nice. Uh, then there was a conversation that took place. Well, there is a conversation. There are loads of conversations that take place in a two and a half hour film. And this is a dialogue heavy movie. Uh, but there was a conversation in the office where the head teacher and the close friend talk about the relationship that has just been revealed that takes place between the father of the of the deceased son and her, the head teacher. Um, so, you know, vested interest and, and stuff like that. Um, now, Ben, I remember in the episode you brought about the advertising yeah. element to this film yeah. where there's an advert that's going on during the uh, an advert is being made around the school when yeah. the funeral's taking place, or at least uh, one of those kind of assembly type things where you get together and talk about what you know it is sort of like an informal school funeral basically um well there's a particular moment during the scenes when the advertising boom light on a crane is that what you even call it i don't know what you call it um yeah it, uh, lighting rig outside lighting rig there we go that's what it, is. <laughs> it, it lights the scene of a conversation like it's a movie um, it, it does course. and then the, the at one particular moment the crane goes down and the lights go off at exactly the point when piano music stops and someone has something to think about what was just being said. Like, again, you wouldn't necessarily get that first time round, but you just pick up all of these things whilst you're watching this film again. Then we've got things like the military drum, the drum step that, that, that is very, very sporadic, like three or four times at best. The very deliberate use of a military drum step to represent political divide, clearly with a right-wing child that's died. And we've also talked about the sirens before. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still torn about the sirens because you, you do hear sirens in Norway. Um, yeah. Once time. But I, 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 maybe not this much. No. And, 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 and I think, Paul, you messaged me privately with a link to, to essentially these are quitting time sirens. Um, these are like yeah. sirens that do take place when you either end work or, or school ends. Um, but bearing in mind that the school's closed for the most part during this, this mm. is this what adds an extra element to it, or or is it? You know, again, art, nuance, that kind of stuff. And for me, as a final point, chaps, um, 
for me, this is actually quite a theatre piece. Yeah. Um, like for me, if you think about a theatre piece, if you've ever, we've all been to theatres at some point. Basically, yes, you've got a whole cast, uh, but there is no doubt who the lead character is in that particular piece, and all the rest are just like standing in the background, you know, flip, reading a fake book or, or kind of adjusting shoelaces or something. Here, for me, absolutely everybody is a lead actor. Yeah. Every single yeah. person in this movie has a part of the film to themselves. They are never ostracised. They are always there somewhere, even when they're not on screen. Um, they're being discussed, or they're being. And the nepotism element of this has a factor as well, because yeah. a lot of them know each other already. Uh, but as uh, going back to the art again, as one of the as one of the uh, lead actors says in this movie, uh, she said she literally says, as a narrator, almost everyone will have their say, and they do. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That, that's very much part of the kind of the Nordic culture as well. It's it's very um, uh, democratic, you know. They they have a, a structure and a system, and everyone has their say. And everyone... an artistic piece. Yep. Whether yeah, whether it's you know an artistic piece or real life, they have a kind of a very democratic attitude towards everything, and it's very represented in this film. Everyone gets heard. Like even the most minor characters have their moments. So yes, um, and I, so yes, it is a beguilingly simple film, but it is also for me an artistic piece along with it, which does not make sense, but it's very much the case, Ben. Yeah, I know. I, I have exactly the same feeling about it. Um, it's yeah, yeah. Uh, it's an artistic level which is different. It's not showy. It's not in your face. It's no. It's a real world kind of artistic thing that, that uh, yeah, like you say, a lot of people are going to miss the first time they watch it. Um, watch it carefully. I say two hours thirty-seven minutes. Get lost in it. <laughs> really, kind of Which, you know, embrace. I it. think we all did. I think we all yep. did. Uh, and just as a final, final point for me, um, the only disappointment for me in this movie is the fact that Norway didn't put it forward for the foreign language Oscar. I mean, mm. that for me is just oh god, yeah, odd, what, odd what to me they, because especially because well, yeah, what are they playing that? Because this is a film that need the world needs to see. This mm. is a film that the world would enjoy. Yeah. Um, and, and and Paul, we did Agnes Joy from Iceland, yeah, and we did Charter from Sweden, and both of those countries have put that forward for the Oscars this year. Yeah, yeah. And you think, just... well, hang on a minute, those are vastly, vastly inferior films to this. So what what are the Norwegians thinking? <laughs> you know? Yeah. What did Norway put forward for the Oscars? Uh, something I can't even remember, but nothing. We'll obviously probably do it next year, but uh, <laughs> no, not this. And it, and it fits the criteria. And in fact, it fitted the criteria of last year's Oscars and this. Like if if it gets released in that in the in the country of birth um, between a certain span of time, uh, it is illegible. And obviously, if it's not in English, therefore, um, so I don't know what they're playing at. Maybe they're just so proud of it they just want to keep it to themselves. Um, Maybe they think you know, being democratic, everyone gets their say. This film won some awards, so why not nominate a film that didn't win anything else? I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a yeah, that's a, that's a very Norwegian attitude, isn't it? Really. Uh, <laughs> Paul, any final thoughts on Beware Children before we move on? No, it's a very engaging film. You're right about the little things. I mean, there was something that, uh, that one of the main teachers that's in it goes into his uh, classroom and the, the pupils have written something on the board. And if you wrote that board uh, here in the UK, you'd probably get thrown out of school, expelled or suspended. And he actually came in and actually properly spelled it. And that should address an image as well, you know. Uh, but yeah, it was a very engaging film. I, I, I did enjoy it. 
I mean, th- this this is a this is a really good film for for this t- kind of festive uh, time period because there's it's just overindulgence. Like yeah. as soon as you think the film is going to come to an end, that add more and that add more. Yeah, you, you, you've just briefly mentioned the the incident that happened when somebody wrote, was it "fuck you" on the board or something? Somewhat, yeah, um, yeah. An English teacher actually, instead of castigating the child for it, actually corrected the spelling as an English teacher. That becomes a thing. Then, you, when, I think there's an interesting aside here. They um, in, English swearing isn't like um, a bad thing in Norway, so. I can't remember what the there was a song that was released years ago. Oh, um, forget you. I think the English title was. Um, but in in Norway, when they played it on the radio, it was just f u, just on the radio, just any time. <laughs> no, no one cares. English swearing just doesn't have any meaning. There. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there's, there's just more and more, and it, like, I think after about two hours and twenty, they add in stuff about adoption. Because yeah. I, I think the gay couple have an argument about that for a while, and you just think, "Oh my God, more and more and more. This is just a hell of a thing. It's it just yeah. so much to to, uh, to get done." And and it it's a two and a half hour long film, but they could. But we've also seen those kind of films where they just focus on one or two things. Here, multiply it by about ten. It's uh, it really is a hell of a thing. Right, moving on then to uh, Uncle. Now, uh, one thing you can guarantee with the Outside Centre Fun podcast is, as we've already said, a variety of passports and styles. So we move on to a film then. We've just come off a film where there's lots and lots of talking. And it's all good and none of it's wasted. Here, we're going to move on to a different film, very different film about the language of movies and the language of cinema, where the language takes a completely different form. And that is no language at all, hardly. Very (laughs) little dialogue. In fact, the first spoken word comes after a whole five minutes and it's simply the word Nutella. (laughs) Um, that can only mean it can only mean it's the Danish film Uncle which was also a fellow uh, Nordic Film Council Film of the Year nominee that did lose out to Beware of Children as we've said and basically it's about a woman called Chris who lives with her uncle and she helps look after the farm as well as him because he had a stroke some years ago she she essentially is parentless uh, and also without aspiration career-wise uh, she had no choice but to give up her desires to become a vet, and she's perfectly content being on the farm with her uncle. Or is she? Or isn't she? Or is she? <laughs> uh, this film, as already explained, is relatively dialogue-free, and I love the film for that. Um, what dialogue there is, it's not wasted at all. Instead, this film prefers to show you what the characters are feeling. And the way that the film does this is focusing firstly on the routine, what a role routine has within someone's life, you know, who's obviously been through some traumas that you get to learn about as the movie goes on, but also the comfort and the solace that you kind of get from routine. And the film really, really focuses on for a good half an hour early on about what the routine actually is. Up at half past five, you wake the the uncle up, you dress the uncle, you make breakfast, which involves and literally involves the following a sliced bread roll toasted with Nutella for uncle, shaken yogurt for Chris with sprinkled nuts on top. Then you put the television on as background and then Chris opens a Sudoku book. Now, you see that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Not just at the beginning, but why I love this film so much is that it comes back much later on as well because the routine is so important and it just gets drilled into your head because the events, as I say, that happen later on, it's not the dialogue that does heavy lifting. It's the routine that does the work. When Chris's mood improves, generally, as she meets somebody 
and she starts to become perhaps interested in this other person, all of a sudden the routine's broken when she brings pastries to the table as a treat and the uncle immediately questions, is it someone's birthday? Why have you done that for? Uh, when Chris starts to become interested in, other, other, in another man, the same man, uh, she leaves the bread bun on the grill too long and uncle has to retrieve his own bread. So again, there's no dialogue of you left the bread on. Um, when Chris uh, you know, wants to head out to the local fair, she has to add tap water to the mascara because it's dried out. It's dried out because she hasn't used it for a hell of a long time. Yes, I know about mascara. I know about mascara. <laughs> I'm, I'm not just a film critic. That's fine. I know how these things work. Uh, but because, So you just know that she hasn't actually gone out in that sense because she's just happy with the solace and the comfort that the routine has given her. Or is she? Um, or is she? Or is she? Yeah. Or isn't she? Or isn't she? Or is she? <laughs> just have some Nutella. <laughs> yeah. If I just put some Nutella under her eyes, that might do it. But uh, yeah. they should have to keep buying some more. But uh, yeah, as, as, when the uncle later on in the film ends up hospitalised, um, the most fascinating thing, therefore, is how the routine ends up being in hospital. She yeah. actually ends up taking the same bread grill, her yoghurt, the same coffee mug, and the Sudoku book, and she does exactly the same thing when Uncle's in hospital. Like, because it's what she knows, it's what feels safe, it's what comforts her during her kind of life. And the film is full of moments like that. It's a film about routine, it's, it looks at grief. But what this film also does, as a final point for me, it looks at identity. And this is the key point in director Renafrello Peterson's other work that was filmed at specific locations with specifically local people, uh, Southern Jutland, I believe. Here, once again, yeah. We have like the classic Scandinavian cinematic kind of rural Scandinavian life versus urban. There's lots of references to Copenhagen and Copenhagen being a goal, just like it would be in Iceland with Reykjavik being the goal uh, that we've talked about previously on the podcast. Uh, and how the pull of the other side is just so strong, but you're never quite able to go ahead with it. And to make that even more authentic and more real in this movie, uh, Yetta Sundergaard, who plays Chris, and Peter Hansen Tiggerson, who plays the uncle, they are, in fact, related. They are yep. niece and uncle. Uh, and the farm that the film takes place in, for the most part, belongs to the uncle. No, I, I didn't read about any of this. So, yep. for me, routine, grief, identity. Ben, you're new to this film. What did you think of it? Yeah, so, I, so everything that you've said is true. This is a film very much about the routine. Um, shaking of the yoghurt. <laughs> <laughs> really caught my attention it sounds like a really gloopy yogurt it does it, 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 it lasts for it lasts that yogurt lasts for half an hour so yes i think it is very very gloopy he's mixing up but like you say when later on in the film when the uncle is hospitalized and the routine is taken to the hospital it's amazing how consoling her shaking the yogurt in the hospital <laughs> suddenly you know everything is is okay everything yeah. is in control when as, as long as that routine is followed everything is fine and yeah the the there's genuine kind of heartache in the bit where she leaves the bread to burn a bit and genuine kind of joy when she goes out to get pastries for no reason at all. Um, yeah, I, I, I did really, really, really enjoy this film. My only kind of, my only kind of not worry about it. The only reason that I, I'm looking at it as, is it film of the year? And it walks this line between tragedy and comedy and so for, for me personally, at times, it kind of steps over into comedy a little bit too broadly. So when, when she finally goes on her date with, um, with the guy, what's his name, Johannes? Um, yes. She, 
she ends up taking her uncle with her, which of course she would. Well, what else is she going to do? But you end up with these kind of um, these scenes which play out kind of like a sitcom where the, the uncle is at the table with them in the restaurant and the conversation all kind of goes through him or they go to uh, the movies together and everything is about the uncle kind of eating food, uh, eating popcorn and sweets at the cinema. Oh, I, I, I love the cinema scene. Yeah. The, the, I mean, stare, the stare that Johannes gave. Yeah. Oh, you, again, no dialogue. You know right. how the relationship's going at that point. Yeah, Johannes is not having fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And there, there are moments in this film which are, are pretty dark. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think for a lot of people, the, the lightness, the humour of the dating scenes is going to make everything much more palatable for them. For me, um, those, those scenes kind of stepped into comedy a bit too. I, I don't need those funny scenes. I'm, I'm happy with grief and routine and sadness and awfulness. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to live there. Um, so if you compare this to The Turin Horse, for example, um, Bellatar's last film, the, that's a film which is also kind of two people, um, routine, the same things over and over and over again, and there's nothing funny about it at all. And this is kind of like a, a kind of a contemporary, more humorous version of something like The Turin Horse that actually goes somewhere as well. Um, or, or, or does it? Or doesn't it? Or does it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Without wanting to get into major spoilers about the last five seconds of the film. Indeed not. Um, yeah, that, that routine. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's just let's leave it there, shall we? I adore the ending. I, absolutely, I mean, yeah. I adore the film, but I adore yeah, the ending I, too. I really loved the ending. I really did. I thought that was the perfect you know sometimes you just want a film to end in a in a very particularly ambiguous way please don't answer anything please don't tell please don't close this story and uncle ends in a very very open place certainly does uh paul you you i remember you didn't enjoy this as much as i did first time around yeah um your feelings now yeah you know i'm pretty the same again. I mean, to me, it was just a, it was just a, a fun behind the comedy. It was uh, celebrating obviously agriculture traditions in the area, and that, and it was uh, things like love and guilt as well. I mean, yeah, the Nutella. I mean, I, every time I saw Nutella after that, I just couldn't stop laughing. I even <laughs> laughed at work as well, and and all these people at Glasgow Airport going. What's this guy laughing at something I tell her? <laughs> Not realising that what I've just watched as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, the ending's definitely the best and the the, the, the cinema scene. Uh, I, I just laughed at it as well, you know, and obviously I used to be a, a cinema shit as well and you, you, you see used to see lots of crazy things. I mean, I've done the big cinemas. I've also done the small art house cinemas as well. And it's unbelievable uh, just laughing at that. And I just looked at my notes again and I wrote Adam Sandler down in it. And I think it must be something to do with the ending again. Yeah, it was to do with the ending. I thought, why why did I write Adam Sandler? If you ever uh, read any of my website and any comedies, I rip Adam Sandler. But I just do not like him. I do not think he's funny. Yeah, uncut gems and things that are okay. But see, he's, he's funny stuff. I just don't think it's funny. I like his serious stuff. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Adam Sa- Adam Sandler has funny stuff. Adam Sandler has some funny stuff. I'm, <laughs> I, I'll go on record with saying he's got some funny stuff. You know, you you put Adam Sandler with Drew Barrymore, it's pretty funny. Um, he has <laughs> some funny stuff. <laughs> Inverted commas. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah. 
I pre- yeah, I will say I did like it just a little bit better this time because I think I knew what what I was expecting and and maybe I appreciated the scenes a little bit better this time. But yeah, it was good. Right, uh, Paul. Supernova yeah. time. Supernova. What on <coughs> earth is Supernova? Yep, it's uh, a Polish film by Bartosz Kruk. Krulik, that's not bad for me actually. Uh, basically, it's got a very basic uh, synopsis: three men, one place, one event that will change the life of each of the men. Basically, uh, the opening scene—it's just basically uh, it's in a like a Polish countryside. And um, the uh, beginning, you see—I don't know what you call the shot—but the shots are panned, and then up the street, you hear these voices, and suddenly there's a woman coming with kids and a drunk man just behind her. Obviously, something, uh, and they're, they're walking towards the, the the camera, and suddenly, as they get the, the sort of tranquil settings uh, changes when this event happens. Basically, uh, as they get closer and closer, and then suddenly you see the drunk man, this woman, uh, they're having a massive argument. It's, it's blatantly obvious the man is an alcoholic, and and then obviously the ladies with the kids, it's given the the man so many chances to uh, prove himself. Uh, They have an argument, they go the other way, next minute you hear something happens. And basically, this is a lot of, uh, it's a film, it's a lot to do with the noise, what happens in the background, not necessarily the event, and how it affects everyone around, around the event. I mean, because uh, everything just falls apart as well. And then even when the police come in the scene uh, and the person, the other person involved in the incident, it's just absolute chaos. I mean, it's <laughs> the way I describe it, if I remember, uh, it's like an episode, of, let's say, like a casualty. But this time, it's, as I said, it's more interested, not in the person it's something's happened to, but everything around it and what's actually happening, because there's one, there's a there's a politician, a very corrupt politician, and then there's the police, who's the first on the scene. Probably what I'm saying to you, viewers all have realised there's been an accident as well. I mean, it was for what it is. Is we went through a period, if you remember, feel uh, we we quite a lot of first first day uh, film. Uh, first director films and yep. this was one of them and this was apparently a budget of just under 300,000 euros which is about 250,000 I mean it was a very very modest film no special effects and it was great use of sound design as well it, it just hearing everything it, it, it was a how do you call that it's an audio it's like an audio experience rather than an actual visual experience uh, as in the reason why it's called a uh, supernova that was something you learn at the very end without saying too much about it. This film caught me. This was one of the films that, uh, if you remember when you, when I first spoke to you, uh, you asked me about things and I just went to the Glasgow Film Festival. This was one of the, the, the films that did well at the Glasgow Film Festival. I think it, it got an award as well. I mean, it was. I really, really did enjoy it. I was surprised it was going to enjoy it. Plus, it's only a short film. It's only about an hour and 10 minutes, an hour and 15 minutes. And I think if it was any longer than that, it would have lost its momentum as well. So, yeah, I really liked this film. I think I explained that okay. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a while, you know. Okay. 
so I, I really loved this film. Um, this, it, it felt to me like I was willing this film into being as I was watching it. So it starts off, like Paul said, with a row um, between a, a woman and her husband. And I was sitting there watching, it was about four minutes in, yeah. And then the camera, this film is, um, Martin, Martin Scorsese said that filmmaking is very much about what's in the frame and what's out of the frame. And I think Supernova is the perfect example of this, what's in the frame and what's out of the frame. Because um, the camera will suddenly move and introduce new elements to you, which previously have just been there through sound. Um, so you're doing a lot of work when you're watching Supernova. It's all about what's in the frame and what's out of the frame. So it starts off man and woman arguing on a road. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, man, it would be so great if this film just stayed on this road for the entire movie. And then, boom, we just stay on yeah. this road for the entire movie. And I was like, oh, God, it would be so good if and then like everything I was thinking in my head happened in the film as it went on. And I, I was just like I was just dizzy with glee while watching this film found it so exciting so kind of immediate and urgent it all it all kind of takes place over real time as well yeah. uh, not exactly real time but slightly compressed but it, it is um about the span of two hours of actual events happening um, I just really, really enjoyed this film. Um, it's all very much, again, like uh, Beware of Children, it's a film that wants you to experience a moment from everyone's perspective. So the the victims, the uh, the not the aggressors, but you know the <clears throat> the the assailant, um, the witnesses, the police, um, everyone gets a few minutes of the film focusing on them even that um the is he a police assistant that guy who finds the camera in the car i think he is yeah he's like his he's only in the film for about three or four minutes but like the when it's the film's about him he's just the star for a moment he's the guy who finds the camera he's the guy who finds the footage um yeah i really really love this film um mixed feelings about the ending yeah, uh, this is this was always going to be a difficult thing to wrap up, um, especially in the the short running time that it's got. Uh, part of me loved the ending. Part of me, though, there's there's a certain element about the ending that I wasn't crazy about. But mm, overall, my feelings about this film are gloriously positive. For me, this is a television movie. Uh, it does look better than plenty of television movies, uh, but uh, it's for me, it's overall oeuvre is very much that of a television movie um for all intents and purposes this is the weakest film of the entire list for me um that being said there's actually nothing drastically wrong with it no uh, clearly you two liked it therefore that's an opinion you can't disagree with but um no i mean that's why this list is so strong because normally the weakest li- the weakest film on the list a comes from ben and uh, <laughs> but b yeah, is, it, 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 i'm actually i'm actually adequately able to explain why I can't really hear, I can't really do that here, other than the ending. Mm. Now, the the reason is, is that I think this film actually struggles to make some sort of a connection between Supernova and the event in this movie. It does it several times, it tries several times, and for me, it fails several times. Like One of the key, I think one of the biggest attempts it tries to make at linking a Supernova, aka sort of some sort of like, a cosmological event. A cosmological kind of existential yeah. massive event. Uh, the, the, the biggest attempt it tries to make is when 
is it the politician that's standing on top of a car? Yes, yes it is. Yeah. And the wind and everything starts to swirl around. Uh, yeah. And you think, oh, my God, the supernova's happening. No, it's just the, it's just the police helicopter arriving. But it's also, um, it's also the supernova at the same time. Right. Well, well, for me, it wasn't. That's the point. It's like <laughs> because because the events already kind of happened at that point. And it's kind of like I just couldn't quite make the connection between the event and the supernova. And the ending for me, I just wonder because, I, I mean, well, positive. I want to see Bartosz Kudyk's next movie yeah. because it's a nice looking film. It's well made. And yeah, for me, the performance is a little cliched, like all of them have their own distinct kind of tick boxing that they do, which is, you know, whatever. That's fine. As I say, a bit TV movie-ish for me. But at least from a first-time director, the very least you can do is make me watch. Is make me want to watch your next movie, uh, and and that's going to happen here. Like we'll, we'll we will get Krulik's next movie on the podcast. Like that that's just a thing that's going to happen. Um, but yeah, it, it, the ending of the thing. It's for me the ending of the thing is probably, in my view, without knowing, without having seen any interviews how Bartosz Krulik actually dreamt the film up in the first place. I can just mm. imagine Bartosz Krulik driving in his car, turning the radio on, hearing a report of a supernova event that was forthcoming and or had happened. Mm. And him going, oh, I've got a film idea about this. And he's driving along, and then he th- while he's driving along, he thinks, oh, what if there's an accident? Yeah. Like, for me, the ending is how the film actually starts. And, the, and how the film was actually conceived for me without actually knowing anything else other than my own opinions, uh, which is a dangerous place to be. But uh, yeah, I can't really say much else about Supernova. I clearly have declared my lack of interest in it, uh, but it's inoffensive. It's comfortable. It's easy. Um, but it just for me, it just gets swamped up with high pieces of art that are that have been and are yet to come on this podcast. Yeah, I, I think it, it does a really nice line in the very big and the very small, um, really, really, really minor events um, and how they lead to huge events and how and how stuff just happens. But I, I totally hear you on the TV movie aspect of it. I, yeah. I thought it was like uh, Beware of Children. I keep wanting to call it Barna, like Beware of Children. I thought this was, again, beguilingly simple. Um, a lot of people will come to this thinking, oh, look, it's a handheld camera TV movie. But... Um, the the reveal of things the way this film controls what you see and what you don't see was just beautifully played out like when the police turn up for example you don't even know they're the police for a while because you're in so close to them you just think it's two guys talking about music driving car and then they arrive on the scene and oh it's the police and the film keeps doing this to you it keeps not showing you something and then revealing it and surprising you but i do i at the same time i do hear you um on the ending uh yeah i do it's, it's the guy standing on top of the car that i didn't like and lo and behold that's what they go and do the poster of exactly. <laughs> yeah. um yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, almost, it's almost as if the yeah as if the film was like was really pushing for that particular scene to be yeah. the supernova yeah. and it just doesn't work out that way it doesn't, it like, doesn't it, it, yeah. ill-conceived and bad thought out in my view for that yeah. but uh, hey ben why haven't you mentioned the lighting yes I'm... <laughs> are, you not, are you not blown? Are you not blown away by this lighting? Because I thought you would be. There, there is a beautiful. Hey, if I'm calling out the lighting, then the, the, there should be something with it. Because I normally don't give a toss about lighting. It's, it's, it's <laughs> the only kind of non-realistic movie moment. So it's the end of the movie. Guy standing on a car. Um, a supernova happens, and it's instead of uh, spending a lot of money on a CGI supernova, it's just all done with the lighting. Yeah. Uh, 
the rest of the movie just plays out 100% realistic daylight or um, in-vehicle lighting. And then at the end, you get this this glorious kind of... It's very subtly done. Um, I, I, I did really like that aspect of it. It's just, it's simply the image of the guy... Sta- this is going to sound so lame, but it's this guy standing on top of the car, surrounded by the crowd. There's a finality that's going to happen here. Are they going to tear him to pieces? Is he going to um, uh, absolve himself? You know, what's going to happen? And although I don't... <coughs> need this film to wrap itself up into a, a with a neat little bow um no, it kind of it doesn't go anywhere um it just it just ends with him standing there and the crowd not doing anything um and i wasn't sure about that i liked the the end bit with the couple in the car driving away that that i'm for it was just the way it kind of wrapped up this story that been building and building and building and building you know every, everything just ends up at 11 with this um with the the conclusion of this film and then it just kind of like peters out but perhaps that was the point mm. yeah. and I, I mean the, the other issue is of course is that this is nomination number three the nominations one and two have superb endings like mm. that i don't think either of us could come up with any better endings for those two movies agreed uh, and that that has a slight plot part a very slight part to play in things when you're trying to make decisions about stuff um mr ben yeah. Air conditioner time. Nomination number yeah. four. Uh, yeah. I'll just remind people that air conditioner was my in the in the prower pop rankings for 2020. The air conditioning unit was number two on my prop power rankings, uh, <laughs> and, and and I think Ben, when you give your review, you might be able to explain why. Uh, so here we are with air conditioner. Ben. Yeah. So air conditioner is uh, it's made by a writer director called Fredik. Um, it's the first Angolan film I'd ever seen, and I think that, I think that goes for both of us. I, I think well. it's <laughs> that anyone yeah. have seen before. Exactly. Um, it's it's a very very strange beast. Um, <laughs> it's the story of how is it? Is it Matacado? Matacado? Uh, yeah. Matacado. Yeah. Who is um, a man who fixes air conditioners? Um, and there is uh, a spate of air conditioners just falling out of the sky going on in Angola. And Matacado uh, gets into a bit of a pickle because he's he's got to get his his boss's air conditioner back. Um, that is your story. So you might be sitting there thinking, oh, right, so we're, we're in broad comedy, comedy kind of um, territory. We're going to have a, like air conditioners falling and people running around. No, no, not at all. No. Um, Genre-wise, it's very difficult to say what air conditioner is because it's kind of like it's a science fiction drama comedy um, that is also a kind of a, like a, an introduction to everything that you might want to know about Angola as well um it's an astonishing film um scenes play out with people speaking to each other um kinetically mentally without speaking um lighting is lighting time lighting is a key (laughs) part of what makes this absolutely yep and i we recently watched what was it um shine your eyes which I said um, at the time reminded me of Air Conditioner. Going back to Air Conditioner, um, it's nice to see a film that's just a little cut above Shine Your Eyes regarding the kind of just the inventiveness of lighting. The, you know, the budget for Supernova was, what, 300,000 euros? I would imagine that the budget for Air Conditioner is half of that. Yeah. Um, and yet what they've created is just a hell of a thing. It's a very difficult film to pin down. It's funny, it's sad, uh, it's moving. Um, the performances are astonishing. 
um, uh, you've never seen this much of Angola in your life. Uh, it's just a, a really, really impressive film. I just, I really loved it. Um, I loved watching it again, going back to it. Um, Matasado is just the, the loveliest guy. It's just a pleasure to spend time in his company. Um, yeah, it's, it's a double thumbs up for air conditioner. Yep. Uh, I mean, I always, always want yeah. to include on any film of the year list for this podcast, the biggest surprise of the year. Mm. And for me, this is without question that when I look, when I look at what I expected of each and every film on this list before we actually reviewed it, air conditioning would have had the least expectations for me. But for the reasons that you've, that you've stated, like the story is exactly what you said it was going to be. Uh, well, I mean, obviously it goes without saying that I picked this because, you know, <laughs> it's me. Uh, it ha- ha- always seems to be on the pulse with these things. But, you know, it like the title itself was the only reason I picked this movie. I thought, okay, air conditioner, why not? Yeah. Um, but, but, but why not indeed, basically? Like you say astonishing, I call it extraordinary. Yeah. Like it's totally authentic. You know, where a lot, a lot of films like merely document a version of life, this film is life. Mm. Like we learn about, we learn about the precious commodities of air conditioners in Angola. Yeah. And it never deviates too far away from them either, uh, which is really, really interesting to me. Uh, but as I say, it, it, it's not just about air conditioners. There's other things going on too. It's a pre-conflict Angola. And what, and how, well, we are now post-conflict, but the air conditioner was very much part of pre-conflict Angola. Because as we get told on the radio in this movie, mm. the air conditioner units have now their own body in government. They are now state-controlled which means that the death of each and every air conditioner is to be mourned like a family member that you've lost control of and you yeah. no longer own that individual or that air conditioner. And it's just just thinking about that alone. Jesus. That is just, that, who, who comes up with that? That is just yeah. astonishing to me. As the film goes on, there is a kind of a very, like a kind of Cronenberg kind of technology and human kind of level of interaction going on here it's it's all very it's not it's not digital it's all very analog but there's a kind of the distinction between human beings and the the machines they make is blurred as it's yeah absolutely Uh, and we'll come on to the electronic shop in a minute um but yeah that state ownership is very much part of this movie but but before it gets too much into that before it completely takes over the film so yes you have to go to an electronic shop and get um get an air conditioner fixed which Matasado has to do but on his way he goes home he visits his mother he gets some food he then stops in the street and plays drafts or checkers whatever you call it in your country yeah. uh, like that's Angolan life yeah like it's got time for that and the, the music all the way through as well is a beautiful piece of music I think I think there's two original compositions compositions in this film but it, I can't quite remember if there's one or two whatever the music just great as well uh, and you know the electronic shop Mr. Mimo yeah. What can you say? You know, a man whose job it is to preserve old technology, fix old technology, technology that was once innocent and individually owned, but you know, who's now Mr. Mimo's job is now to preserve those memories for those people of what it was like pre-conflict when everything was less state-controlled. Like the image of this man, like you know, as we find out, he he, he ends up hooking everything up to a car to reminisce and to preserve everything of the past, including plants. Like this is, you know, but, uh, Paul, you've kind of tweeted recently that um, this reminds you reminds you of a certain American director. Yeah. Um, I, I'll let I'll, I won't spoil what that is. I'll let you reveal that. But I actually disagree with the name that you mentioned. Uh, for me, 
if Wes Anderson had made this movie, people would be going absolutely apeshit for yeah. it. Oh my God, look at this off-center American film where you've got things like air conditioning and a DeLorean-style rem- reminiscing time-traveling car. Uh, oh my God, Wes Anderson is a genius. Well, guess what, ladies and gents? Wes Anderson did not make this movie. His name is Fredeek. He made this movie with yep. a supremely talented Angolan team. <coughs> and uh, Paul, you're new to this. What did yeah. you think of Air Conditioner? I, I, I really, she went, obviously, uh, I like to go for walks quite a lot. So what I like to use guys, <laughs> guys. And... That's a side I likes to go for walks. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I get my phone in, I've got a load up with podcasts. Obviously, I was listening to you guys uh, talking about it. I said, I really want to listen to this. And I was so glad it did get picked for this uh, episode. Uh I don't need to admit, I'm very selfish when it comes to African uh, cinema. I don't know if it's just because I saw Tuki, is it Tuki Buki, the, the Day of the Hyena? Uh, it was <laughs> the only film that I saw, and I was just thinking, oh, that, that's fine, but this doesn't feel like an African film. No. From from the from the, the sort of jazzy um, uh, score, I thought I was listening to a Brazilian film, cause, and then again, Angola is, a, I believe, was a, a former Portuguese, Portuguese colony. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, it was a minimal dialogue. What I liked about the, the, the camera style, I liked it how it was always most of the time behind him, like it was a third person type thing, like someone following him. Or obviously, where it's the viewer. Matter side, that... yeah, matter side are giving us all a tour of Angola. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're in the follow shots period of cinema. We're going to look back at the, the the ten years we're living through at the moment. It's cinema's about follow shots at the moment, very yeah, much. Yeah. Yeah, so I really liked that, and and I, and I have to admit, it was a great intro, and it was a fine example of, for someone like myself who's not seen a lot of African cinema. This would be a great intro for a sort of very contemporary sort of yeah. uh, style. I mean, uh, the I didn't read much about it, and I'm glad I never because the, the, the it, it gave me a very supernatural, especially the scene that Ben mentioned with a telepathically to speaking teacher. And I went, "What the fuck's going on here?" <laughs> you know, and, and and it just it just came out of the blue, and that's where I, I mentioned a certain Mister Lynch, David Lynch. I don't know necessarily. I meant the actual supernatural. I think this uh sort of overall tone slightly, but I think that if I remember rightly, did Freddie. Uh, learn his trade or, or trade in New York. So obviously very inspired, influenced by probably the films like Cronenberg, uh, Lynch, and his uh, few yeah. mentioned possibly few, uh, Wes Anderson, and uh, lots of many of the old American classics. And I think that Supernatural gave us a mystery to the the aircon. You know, it was it was like suddenly <laughs> they were just falling everywhere, and it was like. <laughs> it was very, very serious. It was like an ep- epidemic film. I know that's not a, 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 a nice word to say at this time. <laughs> the time everything that's happening. Uh, but, uh, but, also... but, but actually, it's remarkable because aren't we all recommended to have as much ventilation as possible in these times? Exactly. Well done, Fredeek. Well done. <laughs> the David Lynch thing. This is definitely like... Somehow this film captures Angola. Contemporary Angola is the real world, but it also does this world building of an artificial world, which has a kind yeah. of a, like a, a feeling of being like the real world, but just slightly to the left, um, just just a step out of it. Just this kind of like unease and unrealness going through everything. And I know what you mean about the David Lynch thing. It 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 has that kind of yeah world building feeling of 
unease going on. I mean, say what say what you want about the film, but you know the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, I, never, that, I never saw that. That, that. that is not that is not merely a hotel. It's like an ex, it's a special world, like a a hotel that, that its own world. Yeah. And hey, I'm not praising that film, please. I don't want to praise <laughs> any American <laughs> stuff on this unless I can choose to really want to. But no, that's that's the vibes I get from it. Um, a bit, how many times have I laughed during this review? Like yeah. just thinking about this film, it just puts a smile on your face and just makes you think of something that's just unique, authentic. And I, I love I love the way you say contemporary, Paul, because yeah. it is. I, we we as a podcast hold our hands up of not of ever having done that much African cinema simply because a lot of it was not like this. Mm. A lot of it is still what you typically associate African cinema with being like, and. As, as, as hypocritical as it is to always praise Scandinavian cinema for doing certain things or Russian cinema for doing certain things or Japanese cinema for doing certain things, mm. um, the certain things that Africa always does or seems to always do doesn't appeal to me. Yeah. yeah. Whereas it, if, if I can be guaranteed of more air conditioner style stuff, yeah. fantastic. Let's get it on the podcast. This is much more of a Brazilian style movie than a... Yeah. Yeah. African, although like there isn't really like an African cinema because you know North North African films are not the same as Central oh, Nigerian no. films, for example. So, but it it does feel much more Brazilian than than anything else. Yeah, I I actually uh, when I'm thinking, I think it's uh, I think it's a lot to do with identity as well, mm. and uh, and it, it remind me of things that happened in the film that me and Field did. The, it was the Yellow Animal, where that was a lot of themes of identity, and I believe they went. I don't know if it was Angola, it may have been Mozambique, another Portuguese uh, yes, country. Yes, right. oh, Ben, I, 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 I chose not to include a yellow animal on this list, but um, you would have got something out of it. Uh, and, I, and I do slightly... Be, but the only reason I didn't put it on was because it, it, it just felt that air conditioning was like that, but a lot more... Uh, just a lot better in many ways. Yeah. It's a lot more calm, a you lot more restraint. Yeah. So yeah, have... to have to have them. I mean, we have, we have got two similar films coming up, very similar, but yeah, that um, that does happen. But uh, no, it's a shame. I will actually might send you a yellow animal privately, Ben, for you to watch because okay. that be... actually that actually makes a massive link between uh, the Portuguese, the Mozambique, and Brazil all together in one film. Or what it means to be from each part, and it kind of tracks each part of that journey from an individual. It's a bit. It's a crazy, crazy world, crazy existential, uh, planetary thing that's just bizarre and overwhelming and far too long, but also amazing too. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I would say the air condition is of those things is amazing. Yeah. Like it, it, it gets rid of all the bad stuff that I would have said about Yellow Animal. It just doesn't have them here. So um, it, it was probably for the best, really. But I will send you a Yellow Animal because Paul's made a good point about the, the similarities between those two. Um, Paul. Yes. Beanpole. Which, Beanpole. Which is probably the most controversial thing I'm going to say. Well, it won't be, I can promise you. But yeah. this is actually my favourite film title on this list. I, I, I just love the title Beanpole. I, I think this film should have been called Masher. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, tell us about Beanpole or Masher, as Ben would prefer it. Yeah. Uh, Beanpole or Masher, it's a, <laughs> it's a Russian film uh, by Kantimir Balagov. Yeah, which says you learn uh, is is one of Field's favourite directors. You have no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically, the film is uh, you're seeing the world from a female perspective from uh, in sort of war post sort of war films. You use obviously we see uh, through the eyes of the soldiers or just a sort of generalised uh, view. Uh, basically. Uh, we follow 
Uh, ah, yeah, Masher, obviously, yeah. So it's basically, I'm, I'm just looking at my notes here, and I've absolutely got myself lost now. Ben <laughs> <laughs> uh, will we'll often get people lost, it's fine. Right. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Right. No, 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 it's me, me, I, I go off in one, uh, people keep calling me Billy Conley, maybe it's just because I'm Scottish and I start talking about something else, I mean, I should be talking about another thing. <laughs> uh, so basically, it, it starts, uh, it's basically daily struggles of, uh, uh, it's in Russia, it's a daily struggles of uh, Masha, we start with Masha and it's, you see her, she has a son and it's our human psyche, as I put it, is broken. It's uh, it's when our friend uh, uh, returns uh, from the battle uh, in Berlin. So it's right. This is right at the end of uh, World War Two. Uh, yeah, Leningrad era. Yeah. Leningrad area, uh, and and it's it's just basically seen it from her perspective, and uh, and she brings her back uh, things that we would take for granted. A little luxuries like bars of chocolate, luxury chocolate, clothes, toy for her little son, uh, Pasca. Uh, basically, the opening scene you see uh, her, and you, you see her freezing, and like she's having like a only way to describe it, it's like an asthma attack or some sort of sort of, sort of uh, siege. Yeah, siege. Yeah, yeah. And basically, what that is is that's uh, we always think of PST, TSD as something for soldiers. A lot of bit like the film we just talked about. I think Matt Attedo was suffering for PSD because yeah. I think you learned that he was a, a soldier in the Angolan Wars. Yeah. Uh, and and obviously, one thing after another leads to tragedy. It's a very the, the actual scene which I won't mention uh, is a very heartbreaking scene. Uh, it's playful at first, but and, and it just hits you unexpectedly. Uh, it's. Basically, uh, it's he's, she's got a bit of a childlike persona uh, from from when you see her on the screen and you see her around the hospital. She's very cheerful. She's very very tall. That's what her name with the uh, beanpole is the nickname that she gets. She's absolutely tall. I, I her, and, uh, her actual name's Ia, isn't it? Yeah, Ia. yeah, yeah, yeah. Masha's our our, our friend. Yeah, uh, as well, and and she's always smiling. She's got a, a child. Like obedience, she's a little embarrassed at times. At the same time, you know, but she's still a very strong, powerful, tight uh, woman. And Masha is obviously is like the meaning and balance to her because you quickly learn that the mirror, the mirror each other uh, from the pain, the trauma. And I mean, there it was. Masha sort of represents the pain for the soldiers. She being pulled, she let she's like the pain and the suffering from the, the actual people who are left behind. You know, that's a sort of learning, and it's an absolutely. It, it, it got me. It struck me out. I watched it. And I watched it the day the day before we actually done it. I thought sometimes I think if I watch it a couple like a couple a week or two before, when it comes to the the the, the day we we record, I sort of lose the momentum sometimes. I like to watch it just before I, I talk about it. And, it, and it got me, you know, it really got me. It, it's an absolute fabulous film. It is an LGBT film, I will say that, but it doesn't come across as like something that maybe a uh, Piccadillo pictures who they also do world <laughs> cinema, but they've got a big uh, yeah since on the, LGBT the, 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 films. This is not for their catalogue. This no. this isn't this is a film for adults. <laughs> yeah. For grown-ups. <laughs> I mean, I, I found it thematically rich, and, yeah. and especially not just in the narrative, but also in the cinematography. The use of the colours, like, I think if I remember rightly, one 
one's wearing red, the other one's wearing green, and then they turn it around, and it's it, it gave you a little bit in the sort of darkness of war, end of war, post war. There's a there's a bit of light there, mm. uh, and it's a quite a contemporary movie as well, and it's very much for a Russian movie where Russia, if you're gay or lesbian or bi, whatever, where you get persecuted, it was quite a brave movie to release. And for for this guy's first movie, what a movie to come out with. And I, I believe it did very well in Russia, which is quite surprising. And I think if somebody like Piccadillo Pictures got it, it might have got a, a, a different sort of reception, maybe for the sort of government. I, I just loved it. I just thought it was just, uh, it just got me. It just uh, caught me in, on, on cue, and I'm glad I watched it Yeah, uh, just before. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, are you sitting comfortably? Because now it is time for a lecture on colour motifs. Yep. Oh, this film is full. Colour, I've got the colour. <laughs> right, Ben, so you can you can miss out anything that I miss out. Okay. Uh, I don't suspect for the next five minutes I will much miss much out. The film is full of red and green. Green for hope for, and for fertility and for recovery, which obviously represents A, the people in the hospital, and B, the country as a whole post-war. Also, red for blood as in war, but also danger, and later on, lust. I could have had an entire episode dedicated specifically to the use of colour in this movie, but in the absence of that, with Ben, we shall give you a whistle-stop tour of (laughs) colour motifs in cinema starting from now. The walls in the hospital are green, as I said, for recovery. Beanpole herself, here, at the beginning, she's wearing green. She has hope for the future. People are recovering and the war is over. However... The child she is looking after is wearing a red jumper. Why? Well, a few minutes later tells you why. A certain something happens to that child early on, and it's horrible to watch. It's a lot better watching it the second time round than the first time round, because you know what was going to happen. But still, a horrendous, awkward, horrible scene. Uh, But then you learn all about Beanpole, therefore. Later on in the film, when Beanpole uh, helps a patient move on to the other side, she gets delivered a vial that she then administers in a room that is red, and it is one of the few red rooms in the entire film. Masha, Beanpole's friend, wants to bear another child, uh, but her body is damaged from the war. Uh, shrapnel or, or something. Or, or too many... Too many, um, too many abortions. Too yeah. many abortions, that's correct. That's right. Yeah. Um, now, she's reading a book on how to improve her chances of contraception. She's wearing a red dress and drinking something red. The inside of her is dead. Beanpole enters the room not long after carrying a green tree from outside for fertility and for recovery and wearing green once again because she herself is fertile and is capable of biologically mothering a child. Like, I'm not done yet either. When Beanpole (laughs) Beanpole throws throws up with what is assumed to be morning sickness, her vomit gets mopped up with a rag. Not just any rag, it's a green rag. Masha wanted to wear a new green dress and not take it off because she wants to become fertile. Her body wants to become fertile, but she has to take it off because she isn't fertile. Beanpole kisses green paint on Masha's face. Mm. <laughs> do, do you get where I'm coming from? When, Beam, when Beanpole sleeps with Andre, the military doctor, who is born 
to play the role of a military doctor. That guy can only ever have been a military doctor with I, that I hair. I don't think that guy is actually an actor. I think he is a military doctor. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I literally, like, I'm not. He, he must have been from the Leningrad era as well. Yeah. So he's, he's acted quite nicely. Uh, so the I guess, Adolf guy, the guy. Yeah, I, I felt him without the moustache. I guess, yeah. I guess the I guess the gulags does wonder for your skin, perhaps. Anyway. <laughs> um, when Beanpole sleeps with Andre to get pregnant for Masha, the military doctor, and she does it a couple of times. The second time she does it, she does it in a red room whilst lying down on a green dress. Not wearing a green dress, lying on a green dress. Now, that's plenty for people to be getting on with. I'm sure Ben has got equally amount of other examples going on there. But there's actually one other thing I want to mention before I hand over to you, Ben. Um, mm. You mentioned Masha. Masha's a hell of a thing. Mm. And... This, visiting her boyfriend's parents. Yeah. Now, the boyfriend is the guy that Masha meets at the beginning of the film, and it just it, it ends up being a bit of fun, literally, in, in the back of a, a car. But then it, it, it kind of they hang around each other a bit more, and things get a bit development. Now, these last 15, 20 minutes of that, I, I think the scene's only about 12 or so, 13 minutes. What a piece of cinema this is, by the way. I mean, the colour stuff's all, all well and good and it's fabulous and it's amazing. But this scene, when Masha goes to her boyfriend's mansion, if you will, yeah. her palace, with the boyfriend. Now, at this point, I'm <laughs> going to interject and say that January 2021, Ben, me and you are going to talk about something quite special. Okay. Uh, and we are doing some a movement of cinema and we are doing... We've done it, basically, and we're going to get that out in January 2021 for you, called Dogma, ladies and gents. We've done it. It's going to go out. Now, the reason I brought that up now is because when me and Ben discussed Dogma number two, which we will not spoil for anyone that doesn't know what it is, uh, but if you think it's the ending of Dogma number two, Ben, uh, yeah. where you said it was one of the weightiest scenes you have ever seen in your life, yeah. uh, where a certain reveal happens and it's family around and it's a very condensed room and there's nothing but a ticking clock yeah. at the end of Dogma number two. Stay tuned because you will be hearing that and more in January 2021. Um, here, this is the weightiest scene I have seen in cinema since the end of Dogma number two, the meeting between Masha, boyfriend Sasha, and his parents in this beautiful house is amazing. Yeah, and the like, whitest, the whitest scene you've seen. It's the whitest yeah. you've ever seen, and yet right in the middle of the table is green. So mm -hmm. he's never ever got away from that. How can Tamir Balogov, who is my boyfriend by the way, and, and, <laughs> his, and his team? is able to make the silence so deafeningly loud mm. in those 13 or 14 minutes for that scene is one of the finest accomplishments in this entire list for me. It it's just an absolutely movie. unbelievable. Yeah. The whole movie gets flipped at that point as well. Every, everything that you thought you understood uh, previously gets, gets the rug gets pulled out from under you. Cause you look at Stefan, the, or Stepan, the, the boyfriend, and you just think he's a loser. And then when that scene plays out, you go, oh, I see. I understand now. Um, yeah, it, 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 it does a complete 180, that scene. So, yeah, um, Beanpole is the PTSD post-war film that the UK will never make because we <laughs> yeah. will never, ever um, open our mouths about the, the awfulness that war is and the absolute brokenness that people are left in afterwards. Um, Beanpole is a film about uh, broken people in a broken country in a, trying, trying their best to exist in a post-war environment and failing miserably. Um, I kind of 
this for me this film is this is Masher's film and Masher is is the yep. friend um like you guys have said there's a whole kind of there's a whole kind of subtext thing going on here about being barren and being able being unable to have children and therefore there being no hope or no future um you know how when you live in a country that's been through an experience like world war ii where do you go from there all of your children are dead um all hope is gone so so what is left for you to do and if they weren't dead, they hoard themselves. Yeah. If they were female, so either way, dead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and also, seeing seeing the war from a purely female perspective is fascinating. Like Masha says at the end, she used that part of her body to ensure that she had food, and she has that. And it, it's it's a it's you know it's it's a horrible, horrible, horrible thing to consider what what Masha had to go through in the war. But they, you know that war is deeply unpleasant. Um, on the green and the red, the one thing that I wanted to mention that neither you mentioned, boom, glad. Um, this film, it plays out with green and red throughout. It really reminded me of a series of paintings done by Edvard Munch um, about his relationship with um, someone, I think her name was Tilla Larsen. And mm -hmm. it was a kind of a high passion, but also high violence relationship, um, yeah. which ended up with... I think he he ends up shooting himself by mistake or something or or being stabbed, um, and he he depicts their relationship in a series of paintings which are, he only uses two colours for the most part, which are green and red, um, and green and red uh, are colours you're not supposed to mix if you're an artist or if you're in fashion. If if you're well into fashion, you may be familiar with the phrase "red and green should never be seen." Because <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. That those two colors they're not supposed to go together um beanpole and masher perhaps are not supposed to go together here. um there's there's a clash going on um yeah. but like the kind of edvard munk tiller larson thing there's a clash which is is full of passion love violence and hatred um there's a lot going on this film bummed me out i, I will put that out there um I, by the end of the movie i was feeling a little bit sad about life but it's an astonishing, it's not a heritage piece, which you might expect from a World War II movie. Um, it's, it's a poison pen letter to anyone who likes yes. flag. Um, yeah, a, a very, very interesting film and gorgeous all the way through as well. Yeah. I mean, it, it, for me, I'm just, at the risk of sounding like Ben, the lighting in this movie. Mm. Mm, oh, yeah. my goodness me. It's it just astonishing about the whole thing. And, and my final, final point, because I'll be here for another half an hour and we have other films to talk about, is at the time of this episode, Cantomir Bag Bag Balogov is 29 years old. Yeah, what the hell, man? How do you get to make this? It's <laughs> frankly, it, 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 it's insulting. <laughs> I think Cantomir Balogov might have some connections in the Russian film industry. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I just cannot get my head around how someone that young is making stuff like this um it's very and, 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 and maybe he's peaked and maybe it's downhill from here but even then you've done one great film congratulations that's fine uh astonishing um now then now it's time for some real conflict <laughs> <laughs> we are now about to end we are now about to what i, I did tell you this off air but i think what we'll what we'll do chaps is review these next two together Yep. since they are they are essentially the same thing let's be honest about it um we've got about endlessness and we've got echo one of them is swedish and the other is icelandic they are both uh, vignette movies now i'm going to talk about why i like about endlessness 
Paul, I don't know which one you prefer. I know which one Ben's prefer. So I'll hand over to Ben next to explain why he would prefer Echo out the two. Then, Paul, I'll say deciding vote. We don't really work like that. You can have your independent, own original opinion about which one you prefer or both. So about endlessness for me is obviously Roy Anderson. And that means the beige is back, which is always, always welcome. And I, I fear it might be the last time I'm saying that. Hopefully not. You never know. Um, he's had a nice life, so maybe he has a nice healthy body to get making more films with. Who knows? Um, but he doesn't look he doesn't look that healthy anyway. But anyway, Roy Anderson movie. So here, the collection of vignettes is about obviously life in Sweden as usual. But for me, the extra twist this time is that it feels like it's Roy Anderson looking back on his own life more than ever before. It feels like he's accepting his own mortality almost. Hence why Roy Anderson's narrator this time says a lot, I saw a man. I saw a woman is a lot of retrospective uh, looking back here. And for me, it's about Roy Anderson's life. Um, Question is, does this one do anything different to the majority of his other ones? I'd probably say not. Uh, You've still got a social critique of what's going on in Sweden, Swedish society. This time you've got a loss of faith in Christianity, the loss of faith in the healthcare system, the rise of the far right, the jealousy of people that, you know, um, Obviously, they're becoming more and more kind of insular people and less and less trusting with each other because of all of the above things. That's interesting to me. Quite cynical. But that's the word that I would use for the Icelandic film that Ben's going to talk about, because nothing is more cynical than that for me. Um, Because for me, whilst whilst about endlessness is quite cynical, there's the humour and the warmth to back it up. And that's why I much, much prefer about endlessness to Echo. Um, despite this about endlessness having some of the darkest if not the actual darkest vignettes that Roy Anderson has ever made in his entire career before it gets too much into darkness or into melancholy or anything like that there's always humour around the corner it's the priest enjoying a bit too much wine it's a doctor wanting to catch a bus and literally manhandling a patient out it's a dentist getting fed up and saying goodbye in English whatever it is it's the humour is always there to make the weight and the gravitas stand out a bit more and have more of an impact. And for me, Echo, which Ben will talk about, doesn't have that humour, doesn't have the warmth, and therefore all of the cynicism and all the social commentary just loses it a bit for me. Mm-hmm. And for me, Roy Anderson, therefore, is the master of the vignette film. If anybody was to do a vignette film, I don't know, let's just say from Iceland then uh, I think he'd be the underdog for me because Roy Anderson has obviously had lots of practice at doing it and he has he has mastered it pretty much. Um, so there we go. That's where I stand on the next two films. Yeah. I prefer the Swedish one to the Icelandic one. Ben has a different opinion. I do. And uh, it's it's I find this fascinating, our, our difference of opinion on this, because the reason that I prefer Echo is because it just hits me in such a sincere film. Um they, I didn't really get any cynicism from it at all. It, it's a vignette film. Um, it's a film which does the micro and the macro. So you get it's small scenes about people, but it's also larger conversations about Iceland and Iceland's place in the world and the people who who are from other places in the world coming to Iceland or their place. Um, Echo hit me really, really squarely in the feels, <laughs> really hard. Um, I found it a very emotional experience. Um, it perhaps it's something about 2020. Um, perhaps it's something about me. I don't know, but I didn't get the, the cynicism from it. Um, it just, it just hits me as a very sincere statement about all of us. Um, it also, 
has time for that kind of beware of children. No one is bad. Um, everyone gets everyone gets their turn. Um, no one gets no one gets spoken about negatively. The only negative aspect that I think Runar Runison has to say about contemporary life in Iceland is the use of mobile phones or smartphones. I should say, um, every time a smartphone is on screen, the humanity disappears completely. Um, or, or, or some kind of thoughtlessness gets pushed to the forefront. Knocking we- down Icelandic um, historical pieces to make way for Polish makeshift Lego buildings. That's very, very cynical. Fair, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, I think it's rather than cynical, I found it being sad. Um, looking looking back at what Iceland used to be and then looking at where it's going to. So like the, the building burning theme is a great example of this. So it is absolute madness to keep that house. Um, the house needs to go something. It, it's, it, it's an expense that can't be accounted for. Um, it may, Logically, it makes sense. But to the heart, it doesn't quite make sense. And that, that's where I was sitting with Echo, that... A lot of what it's talking about in regards to capitalism, um, the work, workers not being respected, things being expensive, other things being cheap and therefore better, um, it was kind of clear-eyed in its ev- evaluation of, you know, it's sad to see things go and it's sad to see things change. <clears throat> However, we're we're in the grips of a machine that we can't get out of here. Um yeah, it, it really worked for me. Very, very, very sincere. I also, I love the fact that, like the Roy Anderson film, you have to do all the work. So you do all the editing. <clears throat> so your yeah. eyes are kind of flitting around the screen and you're piecing together a scene all by yourself. Um, I really like films that ask me to do that. And one thing I loved about it is which scene goes next to which scene. Um, that It just, it really, really worked for me. The kind of, the the classic bit is the the children on the stage and then cut to the women on the stage um there's a real contrast being done about which scene follows which um yeah it it, it i just loved echo i don't know what to say i loved this film it was the the best film i've seen for about 11 years i mean we are literally entrenched in a captain beefart versus frank zappa thing here <laughs> i've I, i've got beefart you've got zappa paul beefart zappa neither or both uh, I'm more towards uh, about endless vote. If I was going musically, I, I prefer to be by the, the Goblin Girl, uh, Frank Zappa. But <laughs> uh, I'm so major. <laughs> no, it's because my sister, my sister used to love him, and that's the song she used to play all the time. Uh, yeah. Um, if you remember, uh, feel the the first episode, uh, I was on. You asked me something about the Glasgow Film Festival, and if you can remember. You asked what was your fa- what was my favourite film for the festival, and it was about endless. Oh, this... right. No, that that that's gone into the ether of a pandemic yeah. memory, I'm afraid. Yeah. And okay. You, and you say, and I remember you saying we need, we need to get that for the for the podcast for the future podcast, which you and Ben did get. Yeah, basically, I, I, the exact same thing that you said. If there's anyone going to make a, a like a vignette movie about humanity, uh, uh, it has to be Roy Anderson because he he is the master. He's uh, he's the king of uh, absurd subism. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, I mean, uh, believe it or not, when you sent me the the list of the films that were going to be doing today, I was actually writing my review 
which is up up online. It's not as divert. It's not as as detailed as you guys uh, review, but it goes very basic. And uh yeah, you're right. It's not as uh, the Human Trilogy, which was obviously like the uh, the second floor you you and the living and the pigeon. It's sat in a branch of reflecting existence, which should win the award for the best ever uh, title of a film. Oh no, I actually hate the title. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I just ended up calling it Pigeon. Because yeah, uh, my fa- my, fa- well. my favorite film of the last eleven years is Pigeon sat under Blanche effect on existence kind of thing. But it's like no, nah, it's a favorite film's Pigeon. And people yeah. look at you like, what do you mean Pigeon? And it's like oh for God's sake, fine. A Pigeon sat under Blanche. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. It's it's some sort of thinking, is this the end type thing? And and he just as you said, I was as a late female narrator says, I was I saw sorry a man or. Uh, whatever, and he even puts a little bit of dark humour in there, you know, with uh, one of Hitler, you know, his yeah. last moments in his bunker. I think that goes back to, he did a short in 1991 called The World of Glory, which sort of looks at the themes of sort of genocide or war and uh, things like that. And so Good he leaves. God, I completely yeah. forgot about that. He yeah, did, so he, he leaves he no stun. He did that short back in the 80s as well, where they they had a, a brief little World War Two inclusion in there. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's a it's the one with the truck driving around with the exhaust pipe being stuffed. Um, it's a, <laughs> filled with people, and then the exhaust pipe is stuffed inside, and then just driven around while someone stares at you. Yeah, uh, I can't remember that one. But I'm uh, going to look it up. You carry on, Paul. I'm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, it, it's not as it was, and I remember you guys said it as well. It's not as funny as Pigeon. But it has the trademark uh, things that you expect from Anderson in it. It's a bit more uh, serious. Uh, it, it also is a lot bit more diverse. But, uh, showing it obviously, even here in the UK and around the world, there's, pe- uh, there's people from all around the world now living in the UK and other parts of the world. So it showed a lot by diversity. And I think that was the scene with the was it the the honour killing. I think that was the scene it got you guys. Uh, uh, that one, uh, uh, that that was me. That that was the sort of dark side of things. I think also it was reflecting on. He did a. There was a documentary that came out as well. Being a human person, it was all about uh, Roy Anderson, and also when he was making uh, this film, and it sort of gave you a better insight of what his mindset was like. Because I think a lot of this film is. And fighting his demons because I believe he was he had a, a problem now. He was an alcoholic as well, as well, and that, that it gave you an appreciation of his film. Yeah, it could be yeah. like a a what a, a swan song. Basically, my end line is I called it uh, about endless is a blissful melody of human experience and why we exist. What also pushes us to be happy, comical brilliance, but reminds us everything it has a meaning, and it's called being human. That's what I thought about en- Endlessness. I did like uh, Echo. Echo was more grounded, more real. I actually called it the alternative Christmas movie, because obviously <laughs> it's, set, it's actually set in the period that we are in at the moment, you know. starts just before it, but it's a set up. And yeah, I liked a lot of vign- the vignettes as well. Uh, and, and and what I liked was I, I don't know if I, I've just seen things, hearing things or seeing things was it could be like a radio in the background playing and that was a that was a connection to like a previous story like the bit where the the the, the man having an argument with his mum in the light the librarian having an argument with his mum I'm not feeding the kids uh, wheel meat 
as well. And then suddenly you see the guy sharpening the, the his his knives, and I thought this this must be like a the the, the fisherman goes out to get the whales and things like that. It, it does it, it it definitely reflected uh, a lot of what we do at Christmas. Uh, you know, where they're taking the kids to the Santa's Grotto, singing carols, getting drunk, eating festive, arguing, going to the cemetery. The thing that got me, because I've always seen uh, Iceland as a very wealthy country, a very expensive country, and just that scene of family standing in the rain at a food bank, it just yeah. reminded us that be grateful what you've got as well, there is people, and it's a lot of reflecting... Also, uh, with uh, the, the pandemic as well, a lot of families losing jobs and they need to rely on them uh, as well. It's the same way uh, what Ben said about the, about the political side. It was looking at the political side of things as well. It's a country you don't expect. I mean, it's Iceland's about the size of Edinburgh, the whole population. Edinburgh's about 400,000 or something, just under it. Uh, and, and, and it just... You, you don't think you think it'll be just like a a country a one a one nation party country because of the size of it. I laughed at the I, I don't know if I should have laughed at it, and it's something that maybe Roy Addison would see right at the end when it was the new year was the guy putting out the road sign. It said we had fifteen car deaths this year on this road, <laughs> yes. and then it suddenly <laughs> said zero, and I thought, my God. Yeah. And and what I also saw thought was. The thing that got me was right. We see the, the there's a birth scene in it, and the, and and the the one dimensional emotional motionless father, he 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 just sort of stood there, and after the birth of his his kid, he was still the same emotion mm. as well. But there's a lot of other things like uh, the bit the the rubbish collection at the end. It's it's good. I think it was, and and then also the boat scene, uh, obviously the baby. Uh, sorry, before that, the baby and the 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 rubbish scene was like out with the old and with the new, and then the boat scene reminded me, of, yeah, we're starting a new year. It's got it's not going to be an easy ride. It's going to be a bumpy ride, and that was a journey into the new year. I thought it was very nuanced, very emotional. Uh, I, I just loved. I, I did like it. Something uh, what I loved about it was sometimes you didn't need dialogue, nice. and it, it was very melancholic, and and it made us a loneliness and compassion and sort of tenderness for fear of humanity as well. Yeah, a very social generational political economical film. Yeah. Very I, I called it a, an observational delight. I I, I liked it. I, I I think Echo just slightly just below a smidgen. But I like I did like I both. mean look, basically what the thing is, it's for me that oh they're all extremely similar. You've said nothing wrong, either of you. The only thing for me it's the humour thing. Mm. Like, there is simply more humour in About Endlessness than Echo, which okay. makes it less cynical for me. If mm. you take if you take the humour out of About Endlessness, or indeed any Roy Anderson film, it literally becomes the ramblings of an old Swedish git. <laughs> now, because there's humour in there, it isn't the ramblings of an old Swedish git. It's about endlessness. It's about pigeon. It's about you, the living. Whereas, for me, Echo is the ramblings of a young Icelandic git. That is the problem. That the, the, there are scenes, for example, I did enjoy in Echo, particularly like the garage with the fish. Yeah. So <laughs> people stand around it, having a, making a few jokes about how much the fish stinks and what it meant for the wife upstairs and everything. And there's one or two of those, yeah. but there's not four, five, six, seven of them. No, there are, there that, that is a problem for me because yeah. then it becomes cynical. Then it becomes not not what I need it to be. 
it's um, really interesting this because it's it, everything's just hitting me as sincere rather than cynical but you know it's the same film we're just two different people watching the same film and, and coming to different conclusions which is yeah magical it's what films are all about man yeah. basically if you'd have put the humor in the other one then i i would be it's literally saying that ryanza needs to retire now yeah, he's yeah. lost his touch yeah. and, the, and the, we've got this new upstart that can do vignette films if he wants to Although yeah. I, I sincerely hope he doesn't. Because I don't he's... think he's going to stick with this. I think he's going to go back to a solo film. I mean, I haven't seen Sparrows or Volcano, but I, I think he's going to... This is it, his vignette film. Oh, Sparrows was just, was just a massive cuddle in a really comfortable, <laughs> a comfortable dressing gown by the woman that you love with a nice drink at the side. That's what Sparrows was. This this was like an over-sharp gin uh, that kind of gets you right in the throat and you think, oh, God, that's what, um, that's what Echo was. I found Echo really cozy. It really like oh, it wraps me up in a blanket. Amazing, amazing. Echo, Echo was hu- Echo, Echo was hugging a porcupine. That's what Echo was for me. Uh, right, the last two nominations. We're going to start off, uh, finish off with, we should say, uh, another war film, but more of a typical war film. Paul, The Rifleman from Latvia. Yep, uh, it's also known as uh, The Blizzard of Souls. The it's Rifleman a- is by far and away the better title. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's- <laughs> yeah, because some, sometimes you, uh, in the film you get to understand why it's called it, and I don't think you learn as much by the Blizzard of Souls. It's a Latvian film, and it's obviously it's based on a 1934 book by Alexander Grins. It's about it was actually banned in the old the old Russia. I actually think it's still banned just now uh, because oh, the writer God, really they yeah <laughs> yeah I know I know. The writer actually died seven years after his book was filmed. Yeah. It basically shows the horrors and the brutality of World War One, seen through the eyes of a 17-year-old farm boy turned soldier through the tragic fate of his family. The boy is Arthur's and the year is 1914 and the location is, uh, is Latvia, close to the German and uh, Prussian uh, border, who try to occupy the country. Arthur uh, becomes a volunteer for the, the the Latvian before joining the Bolsheviks and uh, before the the actual October Revolution, basically the trigger the trigger to get him in was the death of his uh, his mother, uh, and it pushes him to join the army with his brother and his actual father, who's who's like I can't remember the war exactly the war he was in again, but he was he was, he was a well respected uh, soldier, uh, and obviously after the harsh training and obviously the the facilities hit him uh, when he's sent to the, the front line. So basically, uh, this film battle, uh, you, you, you get a sense it's very believable. The conditions are drastic and brutal. I actually quite liked the the, the, the DLP on it. It was quite quite good. It captures the, the bleakness and the grimness, the rawness, especially the opening scene. Uh, exactly. And basically, as I saw, there was no peace in anything not even to mourn or reflect. It, it, it did a, a lot of the storytelling was visual as well, and it was also a memory as well. The only thing, I, I, and, and you agreed with me, I feel, was the Bolshevik part at the end of the film. I don't know about yourself, Ben. That was a bit of let me down in the film. Hmm. But the, the overall feel of the film, I really, really enjoyed. I actually quite surprised how much I actually uh, enjoyed the film. And for someone who's not a big, big warm uh, uh, person, I actually did enjoy it. You know, I, it was quite epic. It was basically the biggest box office in 
uh, Latvia and, and beat some of the big American blockbusters. I remember they mentioned some one of them at the time. I can't remember which, which of the big blockbuster movies and they bet it big style yeah. as well. Yeah, I'm I'm not really a war movie guy either, but um uh The Rifleman won me over. Um it is the first world war movie that the UK will never make. Exactly. <laughs> don't want to open our mouths about what a horrible, confusing, yeah. mad experience World War One was. Um but, 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 but why would you want to do that, Ben? When you can just <laughs> when, you can, when you can just focus on people writing letters to each other. Seriously, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, this film did something. It, well, it does a few things interesting for me, which I haven't really seen before. In, in, well, I've seen I have seen before. Okay, so we've all seen Come and See, and uh, the Rifleman is is definitely a companion piece to Come and See, where you watch a, a young person filled with hope and. Yeah. Oh God, um, loyalty to your country, uh, and so all these things get broken down. And the, this person is much, much older by the end of the film than at the beginning of the film. Um, but it also looks at just the insanity of the battles in World War One. Where are the baddies? Who are the baddies? Yeah, are yeah. you the baddies? Are you my friends? Um, it, the battle scenes are just absolute madness. You can't see anyone. You don't know what's going on. What the hell is happening? Which is a fraction of what the experience was for people who were involved in the war. And then, and then the film flips it at the end with the whole Bolsheviks thing. And suddenly you've got this guy who's been fighting for his country all along. And suddenly he's faced with the question, wait, am I, am I the baddie suddenly? Why am I shooting my friends? Why, why are my friends joining the other side? What's going on here? This was mad before. Now it's even madder. What the hell's going on? And I, I don't think a lot of films really look at World War One like so clear eyed as this. Yeah. So it, the, it's insanity it's inhumanity it's awful um just like with you know beanpole is the the post-world war ii movie we're never going to see here the rifleman is the world war one movie we're never going to see here right. either. um yep. it's just bleak and confusing nothing makes sense there are no loyalties to anything everyone is shifting all the time um, it, yeah, and I'm not a, a war movie guy at all. I, I generally think war movies are kind of flag wavy pieces of crap. Yeah. But the rifleman does not. If it's waving a flag halfway through, it looks up and goes, "Wait a minute, is this the wrong flag? What, wait, should, what, what am I doing? What flag is this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who am I? Who is the enemy? <laughs> um, it's 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 a very on the one hand, it's a very traditional movie. It's the kind of foreign movie your parents would love. But at the same time, it also offers something different. I mean, it, it, it's traditional in a way. Um, it's what you would expect a World War One movie to look like, but it's not what you might expect a World War One movie to be, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the Rifleman. Um, I, I, I like the ending as well. Um, at the end, I, I thought, huh, maybe I should read this Blizzard of Souls. I've never read a war movie, a book before. Um, but yeah, I was really won over by it. Um, it's a great central performance as well. Like, yeah. like with come and see, um, if you're going to have, actually, we haven't, I haven't talked much about performances throughout the nine, so many movies. Um, a lot of these movies have really hinged on their central characters and you've got to find a particular type of person. Beanpole is a good example of that. Um, you've got to find a very tall lady and she's got to be very good. She's got to be, the rifleman needs this guy who is going to be both, young and naive and then mature and yep. respected 
Um, and that, like, I can say those words. It's not easy to do that switch in a performance, to, yeah. to be the little kid and then to be the the, the captain suddenly. Um, that's a, a tricky thing to do, and The Rifleman does it really well. There's a lot of positive things to say about this movie. This movie has nothing positive to say about World War I. Uh, found that very refreshing. Yeah. Yeah, the only criticisms I have of this film are what you alluded to, Paul, and that yeah. is the fact that I'd have preferred a little more time in some sections and maybe less time in others. <coughs> Bolsheviks. The Bolshevik stuff is really, really, really dour, uh, but not a good dour, like dour is in a waste of time dour. Uh, but when you are adapting someone's war novel, and we're going to finish with, a, with an adapted novel mm. thing to say in a bit, um, you know, they're quite common mistakes to make when you're adapting a novel. I mean, yeah. it's really, really bloody hard. But, <laughs> you know, if you think about the fact that every American film that's ever adapted a novel has mostly been shit, like it, it ends up being too long, or they end up focusing on the wrong bits too much, or or losing the point of what the actual novel was about. So, I, I really, that's all I've got to say about this film: that it commits the same crime as nearly all other adaptations of novels, particularly from wars. Please give me a break. Fine, it's a good film. Uh, and, and bearing in mind that war films have, have been made from countries and directors that have 50 to 60 times more budget than this. Please. Mm-hmm. This is better than nearly all of them, really, if you think about yeah. it. You know, so I'm not holding it against the Rifleman, hardly anything against the Rifleman. It's a very good genre piece. Again, it gets gobbled up by higher and loftier pieces in this list, yeah. uh, which I think is an entirely fair thing to say. But for Conrad Ladd, War movie people, non-war movie people, they both get some out of it. Hey, we got that on the podcast right now. Um, it's not a Sunday afternoon film. It's better than that. Yeah, It deserves mm-hmm. to be watched at any time of day, and it would be enjoyed by people. There's not a lot else I can say, really, uh, other than kind of I want to kind of go over to Riga and just and just give them some money yeah. <laughs> and support them economically because I, I, I feel for them. I salute their, their job that they did in their role in this effort. And... Uh, not just for the film, but for the actual war itself, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there's a nice bit, of, there's a nice bit of Latvian patriotism, as you say, Ben. Not too much, just a little bit. Yeah. And then it kind of remembers, oh shit, we're all we're all the same stuff here. Real um, yeah. But uh, but you know, I, I love Riga now. I want to go Riga and and spend some money and support them because um they've done a great job with this film and uh what what a turn up it was for it, for it to break all sorts of records as it did. It's a quality piece. I mean, what else can you say? Simple as yeah. that. I, I th- it, my my one negative that I would say about this film, but the one negative, I'm sure I've got more, but let, I'll I'll keep it I'll keep it short here. Um, there are there are things that you know are going to happen in this film. Um, without going into spoilers, particularly, there are deaths that you're expecting. Yeah, yeah. Of course. There are there are people you're waiting for certain people to die. Um, when one of them dies, it happens kind of off camera and is remarkably underwhelming um yeah i don't know if that was deliberate or not but it just kind of like i thought there was going to be a real emotional kick in the pants there um it doesn't happen it flies by um your your emotional death is is kept for later um yeah yeah Uh, no not 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 too spoilerific there i think um but yeah that that surprised me that such an important such a pivotal character's death was just kind of like glossed over um that's my only neggy that i'm going to say about this film though this this is a film that conforms enough but doesn't over conform to the yeah. genre yes that's why it works mm. and your bird can sing 
is a film that Ben hates, or at least he did last time around, so I can't wait to hear that again. But uh, I don't know what the reason is. Maybe he, he couldn't link it to some obscure Western writer that has no part to play in this at all. I don't know. But anyway, Angel Birkensing, it's there's always there tends to be something Japanese on here. And for me personally, this was easily the best Japanese film I've seen all year. Japanese romantic drama that follows a nameless lead character and two others, with the point of the love triangle being a woman called Sachiko. Uh, and quite honestly, as I said at the time, and I repeat, not a lot actually happens in this movie. Each character does have an agenda, which isn't massively revelatory either. Uh, there's a subplot of an idiot at work, which I know Ben doesn't like especially, uh, that causes a bit of grief for one of the characters. In fact, probably the most re- revelatory moment in this film is the fact that Japanese bookshop staff have to wear an apron. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I was blown away. Not not quite lettuce hot dog, but, you know, behind you that probably. You can't get book dust on your clothes. You can't get book <laughs> dust. You can't. And you can't let the thing touch your soul or whatever no. the hell it's supposed to mean. But anyway, so you may be wondering, well, hang on, it's romantic drama. Not a lot happens. Uh, wear aprons in bookshops. Uh, is that enough for film of the year? Well, allow me to confirm why I actually put this forward for this list. Firstly, this film confirms to me that absolutely nobody on the planet is better than adapting novels into films than the Japanese. Uh, here, it's Shomiyake, but basically any Japanese person ever that's ever adapted a novel into a movie has always made it great. Uh, and for me, Shomiyake has done that here. Because in this film, as I've said in previous reviews, no lines are wasted. It doesn't really contain anything that you would cut out from the movie necessarily, at least for me. Um, it doesn't overstate its welcome. It's just pitch perfect. And I feel that I wouldn't change anything. Even though I haven't read the book, I feel that the book has been captured really well in this movie. It just feels that way to me. Uh, because basically, when you watch an American movie from novel adaptation, like it's always, always too long, as previously kind of described. But if there's any elements of romance in that novel that the Americans adapt, there's always going to be incessant talking at some point during the movie. Like there'll always be like a restaurant scene that goes on for like half an hour or something. Here, there's nothing like that. Nothing encapsulates that idea of being anti-American adaptation of novel better than a nightclub scene that takes place in this movie that is lengthy, but no words are spoken at all. It's just some odd music, lots and lots of eye contact, a la uncle, and putting arms around each other. Like that scene for me is pretty much the reason why it's on this list. It told me everything I needed to know about the state of the love triangle at that point, which links to the second reason I like this film so much. And and that is the actual love triangle. There are no adults getting in the way of this movie. They are allowed to live their lives, all three of them. They are allowed to make mistakes, how to go against the, tra- the, tra- the traditions of Japanese culture, as well as societal values. They go against all of those things. Um, and basically, so few Japanese films actually do that. Like, there are no life lessons given here. Mm. Like, you know, most Japanese films, you can even say a lot of other films across the world, but Japanese films are all about normally the, the, the tradition versus the modernization, you know, living to work and working to live, uh, the role of the family unit, class, and even gender, what those things are supposed to do in Japanese society. And the films are always kind of at the forefront of Japanese movies. And don't get me wrong, this Japanese Japanese films of that those types have made it to film of the year before. And some of them have won and they will continue to win and they will continue to get nominated. But just this once, this film that did not do anything like that really clicked with me personally. Um, young adults doing young adult things 
And you could almost have took it out of Japan in that sense and just have it somewhere else. But the fact it took place in Japan was even more interesting to me because then the young adult things do involve having some fun at karaoke and playing pool and going to a nightclub. You forget all that stuff actually happens in Japan sometimes. So, yeah, it did a lot for me, this film. Uh, And it did not do a lot for Ben first time round. So I I am interested to see if anything's improved at all. So I still don't love this film, but um, but do you hate the film? Because you hated it first time, and I never, you never quite really explained what the hate came from. Okay, that was a bit strong, really. Well, well, you know, I'm a man of strong opinions. (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm, I'm torn on this. The experience of watching it the second time was much more pleasurable than the first. I think because I knew where it was going, what was going to happen. Um, I still come up against the same barrier, which is, for, for me, it's the characters. I just don't like these people, um, and that f- I find them frustrating. Um, they, don't, they, they don't do the right things for each other. Um, I don't know. There's the one moment which breaks this is the bit where um, the, the friend's mother comes around, um, and uh is it a gift of apples or pears what are they um apples i think apples. They? yeah yep. that's the the one time in the movie where a human being seems to care about another human being apart from that the film for me is is all about kind of conflict and secrets and not 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 being yourself um but being a being someone that you you think other people want you to be i don't know the, not, the different... not conforming to japanese societal values yes absolutely which is why i loved it the reason yeah the reasons you love it are the, re- <laughs> the reasons yeah. that i don't exactly um which is which all makes sense i guess um i'm much happier watching it a second time yeah knowing that you know knowing where it's going that was that was a, a much more pleasurable place for me to be but i still just don't i still don't love this film i can see why you like it i'm not going to rain on your parade for a second um but for, for me it just doesn't it, it just doesn't hit those notes those high notes paul high notes or low notes or both uh, middle notes middle notes oh i like a bit of fence sitting right <laughs> yeah yeah I'm I'm a big I I love Japanese films. Uh, the early days in my my, in my website, uh, one of my contacts was Third Window Films, who are absolute yeah one of the best if you like yeah, your Japanese Canadian yep. yeah 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 and and right away when I saw the actor uh, Shota Sonatani, he was the first guy you see the the, the first you not know, opening scene, uh, who, who he's 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 been in a few of my favourite films, uh, a couple of Sion Sono films like Himizu and Tokyo Tribe, and he was also in uh, Takashi Miki's uh, First Love. I thought, yeah, I'm I'm in I'm in for this. Another thing is uh, after last month's uh, podcast, a couple of days later, I was actually meant to be going to Tokyo for a week. Uh-huh. As well, and I thought, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I would suggest there's thousands like you, millions. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and, all, and all around the world as well. Yeah. You know, and I thought, yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, being a film buff, I, I found out a few places to go for films and things. You know, uh, yeah, I don't know. You, you mentioned earlier that a, a certain American uh, uh, writer it was it was it Richard Linklater? Is that possibly the name you were going to mention earlier? You mentioned something about American... Uh, oh, I, I, don't, I don't want to mention any American writers for any foreign language film. I just don't look yeah. for it. Ben, Ben's your one for doing that. Ask yeah. <laughs> yeah. I felt it, it, that's a tone in the, in the movie, you know, and, and I, I, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy this movie. 
and that's a quite surprised because I'm not a Richard Linklater fan. I think Days and Confused is one of the most overrated films in the world as well. And that's why I was quite surprised at the tone. It was very similar to his movies, but I really enjoyed that. Uh, until someone, when I met him, uh, Richard Linklater in uh, Glasgow, and someone went and told him I thought uh, Days and Confused and Annie led a run-in with him in Glasgow. Uh, I don't know, that's a story for another day. Uh, basically, I feel like the, the guys were sort of, I would say they're like millennials, they're sort of living on the edge, carefree. Yeah. They, they were just one, they had the, it did say they were financially quite well off, I think they had the success, so they were just reaping the benefits of the uh, the awards, uh, getting out every night, buying cigarettes, buying drink, just enjoying themselves, and then deal with it, the heartache of any financial heartache after that as well. Uh, it's, I thought it was a form, it wasn't, it wasn't going to answer all the questions. It was a form that maybe asked you to maybe dive inside uh, look between the lines uh, to try and understand. The one character I think was the problematic man, I think that was deliberately done, was Boku. Uh, his character, you see, he was very, very uh, problematic. And, and he didn't know what he wanted. And the same with the girl as well. She was very, oh, do I want to go with him? Do I want to go with him? That, no, that. They want in this film. No one. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I thought. They just, but also I think they lived in the fear of rejection. If it, they might not like what they want, or they might are scared that the person say they're going to ask the girl out, she's going to say no to them. It was very, it was they, they, they lived a very tender, complicated, carefree life as well. And if you like that type of movie, you will enjoy this. Me, I'm so up and down. I enjoyed it because I love Japanese uh, films. Uh, but as in this type of film, it's, I think the sort of tone and, and feels right is very different for your sort of typical Japanese movie. We did a few and they were very melodramatic. This is not really melodramatic. This is the opposite. Uh, very in, I, I felt very indie. Uh, this had a lot of American in, in, inspiration, influence yeah. in it. Yeah, uh, no doubt, no doubt. But no, no, not a lot. Uh, but then again, over the decades, J- Japan is been truly inspired by by America during obviously uh, the World War as well. But yeah, I was <clears throat> this is the sort of you were talking about Sunday movies. This is the sort of movie I would watch on a Sunday. And guess what? It's Sunday today. Uh so yeah, yeah, I, yeah, um it was all right. It was I mean good. like others, it's been dwarfed by loftier and higher pieces of art on this list. Exactly. No doubt about that. No doubt. Um and but but equally I I got I got enough difference out of this to add it to a list like this. That's that's it, it is by no means the best Japanese film we've ever had on this on any film of the year list at all. We've had far far better. Um, so maybe in that sense, it actually wasn't a great year for Japanese cinema then, because we, we 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 did exactly the same things as usual. That can happen. Hey, Finland yeah. was even worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, with Finland, you really tried. Oh, we tried our absolute bleeding best for Finland. Right. Speaking of the absolute best. Mm. Now it's time for results. Da, da, da. <laughs> so uh, we're going to do this live, and obviously slightly, slightly edited, just for the awkward silence of people copying and pasting things. Um, so, so if either of you would like to copy and paste your top threes into the list, and I'll do the same. Yeah, Paul's done his. Oh, oh God! I've I... done mine. 
Uh, it's so difficult to think. Boom. Well, in that case, I'm glad to say that the film of the year 2020 for the Outside Centre Film oh. Podcast is Bean Pole. Wow. Now, I, mean, I shall celebrate with my boyfriend later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but let me let me say this air conditioner is in all of our top threes yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean and let me just say that if anyone watches air conditioner and doesn't like it go and find another podcast because you are no longer welcome but uh, no beanpole is the winner uh beanpole is an extraordinary extraordinary thing um and air, but so is air conditioner well so are all these films let's yeah, be fair yeah. they've all they all offer something slightly different everything is interesting here nothing nothing is barren no, like um, that, no, that's right. I mean, I, the, basically for me, I mean, I, for example, my top three were Air Conditioner 3, Uncle Number 2 and Beanpole 1. For example, but you could also apply this to a lot of the films we talked about. Air Conditioner and Uncle are about distance. Yeah. And they're about kind of keeping distant, whereas Beanpole for me is actually about intimacy. Yeah. And maybe it's something to do with the year that it's been or something like I just felt that that, in, that extra bit of intimacy in Beanpole kind of won out for me, but um, the, there's an intimacy thing that I certainly got with Beanpole. Yeah, part of their participatory films, their films where, where you're with, you're in that world with the characters, yeah. like looking over their shoulder, like breathing the same air as them instead of yeah. a step back, watching from afar behind glass. That's right. That's, but I mean, they all they all are they all offer all elements of all sorts of things. Uh, Paul, thoughts of the winner Beanpole again? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. The one thing another mention and you totally agreed was we laughed at it was people were calling Beanpole the Russian the the blue is the warmest colour, which is far from it. Oh, it's oh far from it. It's <laughs> uh, it's a lot better. It's a lot more tender. Beanpole Bean is blue is the warmest colour if, if it was made by a mature adult. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and bear in mind that Kantemir Balagov is twenty nine. He, he, he fits that category, but he's at least 20 years younger than the director of Blue is the Warmest Colour, who for me just wanted to make a porn movie. Yeah, middle-aged perfs like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not perf. <laughs> I'll leave that in. Yeah, um, so, thanks. Yeah, hearty, hearty congratulations to Cantamir Balagov and Bean Paul. He can now have a good, positive, yep, he can have a nice positive career knowing that he has won the Outside Centre Film Podcast Film of the Year. Yep. I mean, that's a hell of a thing. I mean, I don't know where you can go from here. Maybe it really is all downhill. Um, but no, astonishing piece of work. That's it. Bean Paul is the winner once again. Uh, myself and Ben will be back with a new format. New year, new format. 2021 of new format. But first, we will keep you company in January with Dogma. And we promise you, we promise you that they are going to be good episodes because they will be. They will be. Oh, absolutely going to be absolutely fantastic. If you've not watched Dogma before, you do need to listen to them. That'll be in January. Paul. The yep. People's Movies. Uh, when is your podcast going to launch? Uh, well, I'm actually going to watch uh, a f- two films today, two horror films, uh, one called Relic and uh, the re- Blu-ray release of Wreck, both out at the start of January. I love so I'm going, to, I'm going to watch them today. And, Wreck is uh, a splendid film. Wreck, it, yes. Wreck is wonderful. It's my, go- my go-to first recommendation. If someone says, what's a, a good contemporary horror film I should watch? I go, Wreck. And yeah. guys, uh, you'd be most welcome to come on the podcast as well when it hopefully gets set up. And but send thank us an you. Invite. Send yes, us an invite. Well, be, yeah. if if you want good films, you ask me. If you want uh, Ben, ask Ben. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've actually got a couple of foreign uh, world cinema films uh, set up. One was uh, one at Berlin. 
The other one is done by the guy who did the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So that's two films that may interest you. I think we're out late January, February. Right, so, so for if, all of that and more, the people's movies, Twitter, website, everything for that. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's myself and Ben back with you for Dogma in January 2021. But of course, you may already know that because you may actually be listening to us way in the future. In that case, oh my God, what was what was COVID all about? Uh, that's yeah. a word yeah. we're not going to get into right now. Beanpole is the winner. Thank you very much for listening and we'll speak to you in a few weeks. Mm-hmm.